you would turn to the book of Jonah, chapter 4. Jonah, chapter 4. Today we will conclude our look at these four chapters uh, of this minor prophet by the name of Jonah. As we've made our way through the first three chapters, we've learned that Jonah... One of the sons of the prophets was being deployed to Nineveh, which was the capital city of one of Israel's fiercest enemies and most threatening enemies, the capital city of Assyria. Jonah decided to go in exactly the opposite direction, and he flees to a place called Tarshish, modern-day Spain. Jonah runs, but God isn't frustrated. He sends a powerful storm. It causes the sailors to interrogate Jonah in a panic and in desperation throw him into the sea in order to save the ship and to save their lives. Jonah sinks hopeless, helpless, drowning until God sent a whale to save the day. And from the belly of that whale, Jonah prays, likely quoting songs from the Old Testament hymnal, our book of Psalms praying a prayer of repentance, a prayer of faith, a prayer of a renewed hope in the salvation of the Lord, and God commands the fish to vomit Jonah out on dry land. Then he comes to Jonah a second time in chapter 3, commands him to go to Nineveh, and this time Jonah does, but he barely makes it a third of the way through this great city before God takes hold of Jonah and before God takes hold of his one-sentence sermon. The people of Nineveh believe God. From the king on the throne to the beast in the field, Nineveh repents and God relents. Now in chapter 4, Jonah has just witnessed the most wicked city brought to repentance at his preaching. He should be humbled, he should be amazed, he should be on top of the world. God just used his feeble speech to bring about awakening in one of the most wicked places in the world. And not just a pocket of awakening, but from the king down. Instead of being humbled and amazed and on top of the world, Jonah is in danger of allowing his anger at Nineveh to move beyond anger at their enemies, the enemies of Israel, And turn into anger towards God. Jonah 4 is one of the strangest chapters. As we're about to see, look in verse number 1. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, it says, But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. What is the it that greatly displeased Jonah? Jonah. Well, if you back up to Jonah chapter 3 and you see the last verse in Jonah chapter 3, it says that when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it, and it it greatly displeased Jonah. The fact that God relented concerning the calamity, that God relented concerning the punishment and the judgment that he had threatened to bring against Nineveh greatly displeased Jonah. He's, then this word displeased in the Hebrew does not indicate that Jonah is displeased over 
an unfortunate series of events. Wow, that's a sad situation that happened over there. That's a tragedy that occurred over there. That's an unfortunate situation, and that's not pleasing to me. That's not the, the tenor of that Hebrew word. That Hebrew word is not displeasure over an unfortunate series of events. That Hebrew word is displeasure over injustice being done. It literally, if you were to literally read verse 1 in Hebrew, it, was, it would be, it was evil to Jonah. A great evil. And it burned to him. It was evil to Jonah. This is not just unfortunate in Jonah's eyes. This is evil in Jonah's eyes. What has happened here? This is unjust what has happened here. Something is wrong here. God has just awakened a major city through your sermon, Jonah. How does that make you feel? Well, I feel like it's just wrong what's happened here. It's evil what's happened here. And I'm angry. He greatly displeased Jonah. And he became angry. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Now we go back to chapter 1 in the very, very beginning when the word of the Lord came to Jonah, one of the sons of the prophets, and he said, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and deliver to them the message that I will give you. And Jonah responds to God, apparently, as we see in chapter 4, he responds with, at least in his mind, Wait a minute, God, if I do that, they're going to repent. And if they repent, you're going to relent. And I don't want that to happen. So he's praised to the Lord. And he said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I love that, forestall this, I can't stop what God's up to. We can't stop what God's up to. We can try to forestall it. We're spitting into the wind, my friend. We can get out the vote. We can petition. We can raise money. We can mobilize. We can set up our own irritating social media campaigns. We can do anything we want to do, but we cannot forestall the sovereign will of Almighty God. We can't stop it. So Jonah says, well, I just, I'm just trying to slow it down. I, I, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew, for I knew, now listen, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Now how did Jonah come to know that about God? Did God appear to Jonah? Did God whisper that audibly in Jonah's ear? You see, we have a, we have a misunderstanding about Old Testament prophets. Old Testament prophets didn't always get all of their words from a whisper from God directly into their ear. As a matter of fact, many of the times, if not most of the times, when Old Testament prophets went and preached, they were just preaching what God had already said and had been written down in His law. This is one of those cases. How does Jonah know this about God? Because he had read the words of Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. Listen to what the words of Moses say about God in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, compared to how Jonah lays out this picture of God in Jonah 4 and verse 2. And look at how similar these two verses are. 
The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. I want you to look at those two verses and I want you to see how very, very similar they are. Do you see it? But do you notice there's one thing missing? There's one thing missing from Jonah's verse that we see in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And it is the fact that God is just and He punishes sin. Jonah lays out here, you're gracious, you're compassionate, you're slow to anger, abundant loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. That's just what God did in chapter 3, verse 10 that made Jonah so angry. But in Moses' discourse that Jonah no doubt knew and was loosely quoting, we see that yes, God is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity or relents, forgives transgression and sin. Yet... Though he is gracious, though he is compassionate, though he is forgiving, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Moses maintains the justice of God in his explanation of who God is. Jonah, on the other hand, mysteriously just stops quoting Exodus 34 at the point of justice. Why? Because he did not believe God was just. If you were just God, you would smoke these Ninevites. If you were just God, you would wipe them off of the face of the earth. If you were just God, you would punish them rather than forgive them so that Israel can live to fight another day. God is not just and good according to Jonah's definition. And here's where a lot of our problems come in. We want to take our definitions and impose them on God. Well, I know what love is to me. And if God is love, then He is everything I love. You see something wrong there? Well, I know what love is. I know what makes me feel good about myself. I know what makes me feel accepted. I know what makes me feel loved. So therefore, if God is love, we're good. No, we don't take our definitions of love and justice and impose them on God. God defines love rightly. And God defines justice rightly. And we take God's definition and they're imposed on us rather than vice versa. Well, Jonah has fallen into this trap. And Jonah knew his Bible. We can see that Jonah knew his Bible just just from that verse. But he had studied his Bible better than his Bible had studied him. How many of you know we can memorize Scripture? We can read our Bibles. We can study our Sunday school lessons. We can take notes on the sermon and yet not be changed. In the way that we talk, in the way that we live, in the way that we think, in the way that we spend our money, in the way that we act, 
in the way that we order our lives, in the way that we prioritize our lives. We can read our Bible, memorize our Bible, study our Sunday school lesson, teach our Sunday school lesson, take notes on the sermon, and yet not be changed. We can be ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. We can check the boxes without being transformed. Listen, it is not enough to study our Bibles. Our Bibles need to study us. Therefore now, verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, because of this, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Wow. Really, Jonah? You, You would rather die... Then see Nineveh repent, and God relent. And you contrast this against the Apostle Paul. What did the Apostle Paul say in Romans? Would to God that I could be accursed if my brethren would be saved. Nineveh saying, would to God I could die if they wouldn't be saved. If those Gentiles wouldn't be saved. And we, we, we don't want to come down too hard on Jonah. Because Jonah loved his country. He loved Israel. And he is wrapped up in this emotionally. And he's like, I just wish you would wipe them off the face of the earth so that Israel could live. Jonah's faced death in some very unique ways. And I guess it's better to be shipwrecked, thrown overboard, swallowed by a whale, and left there to die than it is for God to repent of bringing judgment on Nineveh. I mean, Jonah's personally experienced some pretty heavy mercy, hasn't he? Some pretty miraculous grace, and yet he doesn't understand how God could possibly be merciful to these Ninevites. Verse 4, the Lord said. Now the Lord speaks to Jonah. He's listening to this pouting prophet long enough. Do you have good reason to be angry? Jonah doesn't answer. He just storms out of the room like a child, it seems, and he went out from the city and set east of it. And there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head and to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. I'm telling you, this is a strange chapter. Nineveh can go straight to Sheol, to put it Christian-y. Jonah's just thankful he's got a plant to bring him some comforts. And do you see how messed up this guy is? I'm angry enough that I want you to kill me, God. And then I get a little comfortable under my plant. I'm happy again. Maybe, maybe God will rain down some fire and brimstone on Nineveh after all. I think I'll sit here under my shelter and watch. Sinclair Ferguson said this. Jonah seemed to care more about plants than about people. Do we care more about the items in our gardens 
the produce of our fields or perhaps the contents of our garage or home than we do about our fellow men and women and the spread of the gospel to them? Do we care more in the last analysis about our own comforts and plans than about the evangelism of the world in our time? We're going we're gonna to wag our fingers at Jonah for enjoying the comforts of his plants that are keeping him cool and comfortable while being unconcerned about the devastation of a major city when there may not be a lot of difference between him and us. I mean, you can think about the Jews in Jesus' day. In John 11 and verse 48, listen to what happens. The Jews know that Jesus is getting some traction with the people. It seems that the people are believing he's the Messiah. And haven't these Jews been waiting on a Messiah forever? And in John eleven forty eight, 48, it says, If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place, our temple, our place, and our nation. They've been waiting on a Messiah for how many centuries? And now, maybe the Messiah has come, but the Jews said, I tell you what, I would rather keep my temple, and I would rather keep my nation than have Messiah. Who cares if Jesus is right or not? We've got to stop him. We don't want the Romans messing with our temple and our nation, even if it means we don't have a Messiah. And honestly, many people could care less if we have God as long as we've got a good economy and peace. You know, a lot of these pleas for revival. Let's pray for revival. Let's gather and pray for revival. Let's hope for revival. It's not really a plea and a pray and a hope for revival. It's a plea and a prayer and a hope that we can continue with a good economy and peace. So let's, let's tip God with a prayer rally in hopes that we can keep our economy and our comforts. That's what a lot of it is. The world is going to hell around us, but we've got some nice-looking gardens. We've got some good laying chickens, some good shearing sheep, good milking jerseys, Holsteins, goats, whatever you want to fill in the blank with. The world's going to hell around us, but we've got some cushiony pews and some air conditioning. And we've got the audacity to chuckle at Jonah, who's looking out at Nineveh, saying, I, I really don't care if you burn and go to Sheol. I'm just happy I've got some comfortable shade. We like what we like, don't we? We enjoy what we enjoy and what makes us comfortable. We probably need, we don't want, but we need God to send us a worm and a wind to wake us up from our slumber. He's not going to let Jonah camp out under that plant for long. In verse 7, God appointed a worm. When dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. 
When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better for me than life. Boy, he's, mixed. he's just back and forth, isn't he? The Lord follows these events by turning up the heat on Jonah. The worm comes along and takes away Jonah's shade. And then as Jonah continues to sleep, unbeknownst to him, his plant's going down as the sun is coming up. And then God burns some sun rays on Jonah's face and warms him up a good bit. And then he appoints an, a scorching east wind. I think these were called shirakos or shalakos or something like that. Out of Iran, they would blow down the mountain and they would just burn you they were so hot so Jonah has gone from happy and comfortable to everything has fallen apart on him and he has had the heat turned up on him and he is angry now he is already angry at Nineveh he's already angry at God for how he's reacted to Nineveh and now he's uncomfortable so he prays for God to kill him in fact in fact it says he prays with all his soul. He's not just saying a prayer here. He's praying a prayer. I mean, he's really giving it to God. Just kill me. Just kill me, God. Please. What would make him want to die? What would make him so angry? We've already talked about this. Nineveh was the capital city of their greatest, one of their greatest enemies, and they were bearing down on Israel. For Nineveh to be destroyed would, for, would forestall the fact that Israel was going to be destroyed and taken into captivity. For Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites, if God, if they repented, and if God relented, it would mean that they lived to fight another day, another week, another month, and Israel was almost most certainly doomed, and therefore for Jonah to go back to Israel and get put on the front page of the Baptist reflector for bringing awakening to Nineveh would automatically make him a traitor prophet as people see the Assyrians marching their way to Israel to destroy his nation. He hated them. I think it's pretty clear. I mean, what else would make you say, God, this is why I didn't want to come here in the first place because I knew if they repent, you would relent. He hated them. He wanted them to be wiped from the face of the earth and go to hell, it seems. That would be better than them destroying his country. I'm not smart enough to time these things or organized enough, Andy will tell you, to, to, to plan these things. But on the day after the 20th anniversary of September 11th, I think there are at least some of us in this room who at least have heard people say, we should just drop a nuke on that part of the world. I, I would get you to raise your hands. I, and I would venture to say that some of us have heard, we should just wipe them off the face of the earth, that whole part of the world. It'd save us a lot of grief, a lot of trouble. And I venture to say that many of you may have even heard folks in church say such things. You know, one of the things that we don't think about is that everywhere we are fighting wars and have fought wars in the last 20 years 
are places that we have failed to send missionaries with the gospel. We, we've, we've sent missionaries a lot of places, and there's some places that have been last. And the places we have fought wars in the last 20 years are places that were last on the list of places we would send missionaries. And yet we would have people who name the name of Christ, who claim to be Christians, who would say, I would rather nuke that part of the world and increase hell's population by the millions than them ever be a threat to our country or our way of life or our economy. Now, I know that that's not easy to hear, and that's not easy to see, and it's not easy to say, but friend, we cannot, we cannot look down on Jonah. If that is our attitude, or has been our attitude, we need to just go join Jonah under his shelter, under his plant, because that's the camp we're in. We're in the Jonah camp, not the Jesus camp. It is perfectly reasonable, expected, and good to be patriotic. But it is a crucial blow to the church when we are bigger patriots than we are Christians. Churches, churches, Christianity must never be conditioned by national environment rather than by the Word of God, or we will be more like Jonah than Jesus. Verse 9, God said to Jonah, Do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. I'm just, Jonah's a little testy, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, I have a good reason to be angry, and the implication is angry at you. John Calvin wrote this about this verse. He said, It is certainly a most unseemly thing. When a mean, and he doesn't mean like mean, like a mean person at school, but a weak, finite creature. When a mean creature rises up against God and in a boisterous spirit contends with him. This is monstrous. And Jonah was in this state of mind. He is, he is moved from used of God to monstrous he is angry at God. And the Lord said to him in verse 10, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand as well as many animals? Jonah cared about the plant. Shouldn't God care about the city of Nineveh? With 120,000 people? And if you're a member of PETA, even the animals, if you don't care about the people, let's not hurt the animals. The end. Not the end of the sermon, don't get your hopes up, but the end of Jonah. Only two books in the Bible end with a question mark. Jonah and Nahum. And they're both about Nineveh. 
leaves, it leaves us with a question here. Without any answer. And I think it leaves us without an answer because we all need to be put into the place of answering it. Should I not care and have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand? We all need to answer this question. But it'll help us answer that question correctly if we know God. And that's been the goal of our study. What have we learned so far? Let's move fast. Go back to Jonah chapter 1, and we're going to review quickly what we've learned, and then we're going to add two new ones, and we're going to be done. You ready? Number one, in Jonah chapter 1, in verse 3, we learn that God is omnipresent. Omnipresent. In Jonah chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Here's Jonah trying to get away from the presence of the Lord, but Jonah, who knew the Psalms, should have known better that he can't get away from the presence of the Lord. And we learn in Jonah, he didn't get free of the presence of the Lord. The Lord was right there with him on that ship. The Lord was right there with him in the storm. The Lord was right there with him in the, in the well. All of God is present everywhere. All of God is present everywhere. He is omnipresent. Number two, God is omnipotent. Look in verse number four, Jonah 1 and verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Jonah, you think you're going to get away from me? Well, look, I can pick a storm up that will break your ship apart, and I'll just hurl it at you on the sea without any energy whatsoever on my behalf. There is nothing that God wills to do that is too large or too small for Him to do in, the, in a fraction of a millisecond, should He so choose. He is omnipotent. Verse 9 of chapter 1, He is Creator. Jonah said, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. God is the one who made this sea that is raging. God made the dry land. He created all things in six days. With the word of his mouth he spoke, and it was. He is creator. Number four, he is righteous and just. Verse number 14 of chapter 1. These pagan sailors called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. In other words, we know, God, that you are righteous and you are just and you punish wickedness, and we're about to throw this man to his death over the side of this ship. Please don't hold this against us. You're the one who orchestrated all of this. Seems these pagan sailors may have known more about the righteousness and justice of God than Jonah did. Number five, God is sovereign. Chapter 1 and verse 7. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and luckily, coincidentally, the lot fell on Jonah. Whew. God was holding his breath when they cast those lights. I hope it doesn't fall on, on Joe over there. He didn't do anything wrong. No, God made sure that the lots landed where they were supposed to land. The lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from who? The Lord. Verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish. He had 
prearranged this. He had RSVP'd a fish to be swimming, a whale, Jesus says, to be swimming right where he needed to be swimming so that he could swallow Jonah and save him from drowning in the sea. Chapter 2 and verse number 3. Jonah said, you cast me into the deep, Lord. You're the one that did this. You are the sovereign God who cast me into the sea. Verse number 10 of chapter 2. The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. I love that God commanded Jonah to go to Nineveh, and he said no. He commanded the fish to throw up, and he said gladly. Fish have better sense than people, and fish aren't very smart, but they know their creator. God is sovereign over the storms, over the lots that are cast, over the fish in the sea, and even over the fish's stomachs. Number six, God is saving. Chapter two and verse number six. Jonah said, I descended to the roots of the mountain. The earth with its bars was around me forever, but you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And then at the end of verse number nine, he says, salvation is from the Lord. Think about the lengths that God went to to save the sailors, to save Jonah, to save Nineveh, to save us. He's a saving God. Number seven, in chapter three and verse one, he is perfectly patient. Chapter three and verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. After all of this, God comes back to Jonah again. He's patient perfectly patient according to 1 Timothy 1.16. The Apostle Paul said, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. God is perfectly patient. Number eight, He is personal. Chapter 3 and verse 5, The people of Nineveh believed in God. And we saw last week that that is literally they believed in God. They didn't believe Jonah. They believed God. They believed what God said to them. He sent Jonah to Nineveh with a personal message for the Ninevites, and he got it to them. And he has a personal message for us. He has given us a personal message in creation. He's given us a personal message through his written word, and he has given us a personal message through his living word, the person of Jesus Christ. He has a message for you that he desires that no one perish, but that all come to repentance. He's personal. Number nine, he's immutable. Chapter three and verse number 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. You've heard me say already multiple times today that Nineveh repented, and God relented. How does that work if God is immutable? The word immutable means unchanging. And not just unchanging, but unchangeable. Don't get the idea that God's going, all right, Jonah, go to Nineveh, let's see what they do, and I'll figure out how to respond and how to react when I see what they're going to do. I'll shift and change as they shift and change. No, God's not the one changing here. God's character is unchanging. God's character and purposes are unchangeable. God sent his warning through Jonah, and when the threat was made, the people of Nineveh were a fit object for justice. But when Nineveh repented, they were a fit object for mercy and grace. God's character and purpose did not change. Nineveh changed. In the words of Stephen Sharnock, is the sun changing when it hardens one thing and softens another? 
or when the sun makes a flower more fragrant and a dead carcass more noisome. The reason of that diversity is not in the sun, but in the subject. Number 10, God is providential. God is providential. Four times in Jonah, the verb appointed is used of God. We saw it back in chapter 1, verse 17, where the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. But in chapter 4, it's used in verse 6, verse 7, verse 8. So the Lord appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade. Verse 7, God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. In verse 8, the sun came up, and God appointed a scorching east wind. God intentionally sent the fish. God intentionally sent the plant. God intentionally sent the worm. God intentionally sent the scorching wind. God appointed these things as providentially working to do what? To punish Jonah? No, these things are providentially working together in order to bring Jonah to him, to God, to repentance. What all is God appointed in your life here this morning? Intending to draw you back to Him. What blessings has He poured out upon you? What trials has He allowed you to face or tests He has allowed you to endure? What situations, what friends, what circumstances has God orchestrated and appointed in your life that you've been oblivious to, maybe up until this moment, that He has used and utilized to bring you to Himself? All of these things are meant to draw you to Himself, to bring you to repentance, to bring you to faith, to restore your relationship with God. With Christ, if it's broken. This isn't on the screen, but in Acts chapter number 17, Paul said in verse 26 and 27 that he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, having appointed, and determined sovereignly their appointed times. You were not meant to be born in the 1800s, or you would have been born in the 1800s. You are meant to be born in the 20th century or the 21st century. I don't think we've got anybody here from the 19th century, do we? I don't think so. You were born when you were born on purpose. God has determined our appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Not only did God determine when you would be born, but where you would be born. Why? that they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us. God is providentially working in your lives. When you were born, where you were born, what kind of family you were born into, what kind of school you went to, what kind of church you stumbled into, what kind of blessings you've experienced, what kind of trials you've experienced, what kind of tests you've experienced, the positives, the negatives, the in-between. God is working all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purposes, even the things that we can't see as being good. He is working to bring us to Himself. And let me tell you, if the greatest tragedy in life brings us to Christ, it is a good thing. It's a good thing. 
Because it, His right hand are pleasures forevermore. What is God doing in your life? What has God done in your life that He has orchestrated to bring you to Himself? Heed those things. Don't ignore those things or take those things for granted. And don't view them as some type of guarantee that He'll always be there waiting with open arms. Today is the day of salvation. And we don't know when or which time God speaks to us will be the last time. Number 11, he's gracious and compassionate. Verse 2, Jonah says, you are compassionate, you're gracious, you're slow to anger, you're abundant in loving kindness. Then in verse 11, God says it. He says, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? The great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals. He's not talking about they don't know their right hand from their left because they're walking around, they're ignorant. They can't find their way out of their house and down to the store. The phrase right from left seems to be indicating that Nineveh is filled with people who are trapped in their sinful pagan lifestyle and they don't know how to get out. These pagan people are helpless in their inability to escape their paganism. They are helpless in the sense that they're trapped in their sins and they're undiscerning about how to escape those sins. They're not innocent. They're not innocent people. But they're helpless. And God said, I care about those people. Should I care about them? Makes me think of the reality that we have more than 17 thousand people groups on planet earth 6,000 plus of those people groups are still considered unreached and unengaged or 6,000 are considered unreached 3,000 plus are considered unreached and unengaged unreached and unengaged means that they don't have a preacher they don't have a church they don't have Christians that are engaging them with the gospel message they are pagans they are lost they are hopeless. They are helpless. They don't know their right hand from their left hand. They are not innocent. They are not innocent. But they don't know, they don't know how to get out. They don't know how to be free of their sin. How to be free of their paganism. How to be free. And how to know God. This word translated compassion here is suffering action suffering action not just well that's a sad 3,000 unreached unengaged people groups that's sad wish somebody would go tell them wish somebody would put forth some effort into going and getting the gospel message to them isn't that what we pay the IMB to do now when we give our cooperative program dollars I mean I wish somebody would do that no when, when God says, shouldn't I feel compassion on them? This is a suffering action. It's action executed with tears in the eyes. God says, shouldn't I feel to the point of action? Shouldn't we feel what God feels if we are His children? If His Holy Spirit is in us, shouldn't we feel what He feels? And if not, we're more like Jonah than we're like Jesus. And that's a problem. In Matthew chapter 9, I'm almost done, I promise. In Matthew chapter 9, this isn't on the screen either because I just added a lot of stuff this morning. 
It's all free. See, if I add it on Sunday morning, it's free of charge to you. Matthew chapter 9, listen to what Jesus says in verses 35 to 38. It says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the people, he felt compassion. Suffering action. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Send out workers. Greek, send out ekbalo. Literally, fling out. Squeeze out. I find this so interesting that Jesus is saying, I'm feeling compassion. In the Greek, literally, he's feeling it in his gut. You know how when something major happens, you feel it in your gut? You don't feel it in your heart. Usually, you feel it in your gut first, right? And Jesus is saying, I feel for them from the gut. So we're going to pray that God will squeeze out some people, fling out some people to go to the harvest. And it's interesting that in Jonah, God feels compassion, suffering, action, and he squeezes Jonah out. You don't want to go, Jonah? You're going. He flings him out, and he sends him to the people who hear and repent. God says, shouldn't I feel? Shouldn't I feel? Shouldn't I have active suffering? Suffering that brings action? Compassion that brings action? Shouldn't I feel that way about those who don't know? Listen. God, if if you're missing the message, listen, God felt compassion, suffering action, so much so that He took on the form of humanity and humbled Himself to be born to a virgin in a stable, to be raised in dirty, dusty, Israel, to walk the dirty roads of Israel, to feel pain, to feel sorrow, to feel sadness, to feel grief, to feel joy, to live the perfect, sinless, spotless life God requires all of us to live in order to get to heaven. And then he went to the cross, and there on the cross he took the judgment that was necessary to pay for our sin in full so that we could get to heaven. You want to know how much God feels for you? You want to know how much God has compassion on the lost? You want to know how much God suffers for the lost? It's an active thing. He doesn't just say, well, I hope you get that worked out. No, he comes. He doesn't just say, here's a list of things to do. I hope you can make it. I hope you can climb the ladder. No, He comes down the ladder. And He does it for us. How much more love can you expect from God? How much more compassion can you expect from Christ? That He would come to you. And that He would take your exam that you have to score perfect on. And say, I got all the answers. 
and fill in every answer correctly and check every box correctly. And then say, hold on. Let me take care of your sin. You don't have to do that. You don't have to, you don't have to do penance. You don't have to pay it off. You don't have to work it off. You don't have to prove yourself. Give me your sin. And I've got what it takes to pay it in full perfectly. You understand that's what Jesus did for you? That's what God did for you? He looked at you. And not desiring that anyone should perish, He comes to earth, He lives a perfect, sinless, spotless life, and dies on the cross for our sin, and is resurrected on Sunday morning so that every person who turns from their sin and puts their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ can be made right with God. Let me give him peace with God. Listen, that is who God is. Jesus Christ. And that is how He loves. And if you don't know Him today, the providence of God has brought you to this place to hear this message. He has appointed this time for you to hear and to respond. And we pray that you would right now, that you would just turn from your sin, that you would call upon the name of Jesus, that you would put your faith and your trust in Him until He gives you assurance that you're His, that you have peace with Him. Would you bow? Father God, I thank You for Your love for us, Your compassion towards us, Your grace towards us, Your mercy towards us, that You would put that compassion into action by coming to this earth to do what is necessary for us to have peace with You. to do what is necessary to take upon you our sin and pay for it in full, to do what is necessary to live perfectly, righteously, and to give that to us on our account. God, if there's a person in this place this morning who doesn't know you, that's not been transformed by your good news, I pray, God, that you would speak to them, that you would grant them repentance, that you would grant them faith even this morning. Give them the courage to call upon your name. God, we'll thank you. We'll praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand. We're going to sing.